welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Nashville, Tennessee. In the last two weeks, we've discussed the contemplation of breath and the contemplation of postures. We have also been progressively deepening our understanding of internal analysis as reflected in the refrain common to all of the Satipatthana exercises. Today we'll move on to the third body contemplation and continue to study internal analysis. The third body exercise is the contemplation of bodily action. Again, Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. Like the contemplation of postures, the contemplation of actions is not an exercise limited to performance in meditation posture but seems also to be carried out throughout the day. Both posture and action exercises thereby tend to carry the constant attentive mindfulness we experience on the cushion into daily life. This passage lists many of our everyday activities, but these can be extended indefinitely and also brought up to date. For instance, right now, I'm speaking into a microphone, fancying myself as acting in full awareness. Parenthetically, I should point out that action is a hugely important area of contemplation in developing the skill of mindfulness. The Buddha does not really go into this in the Satipatthana Sutta, but this is particularly true of skilled action, that is, the kind of action that we learn to perform in acquiring a specialized, precise skill, such as throwing a spear, cutting a diamond, or backing up a trailer, or in ritual action. The passage itself seems to describe observation of actions as they randomly occur, whether deliberate or not. Mindfulness is therefore involved only in so far as we remember to observe. Then, Attentiveness to the actions we happen to observe is facilitated by other toolbox factors. However, skilled or ritual behavior works differently. Mindfulness is involved in remembering the proper course of action step-by-step, appropriate in the given context, then remembering to observe the actions while they are enacted. Notice that skills are often probably primarily internalized, such that the individual steps are not discernible. We talk about muscle memory 
or we can talk about muscle mindfulness. In any case, a skill entails a tighter bond between mindfulness, recollection, and attentiveness, pairing intention and result one-to-one, and provides a very effective training in the skill of mindfulness. For instance, as practice, as we offer incense and bow to the Buddha, making full use of our Satipatthana toolbox. We can generalize this practice beyond the conventional context of skill or ritual and thereby acquire more opportunities for this powerful practice by ritualizing our otherwise everyday activities. Doing the same things in the same order, in the same way, routinely, every day. Remember how Mr. Rogers would begin every show by entering the room and changing his sweater and shoes exactly the same way in every episode? By modern standards, this seems awfully boring and routine. But Zen people have learned to practice like this all the time, ritualizing much of their otherwise mundane life. Practicing a precise skill, which I guess is what ritual is an instance of, also works the same way of precisely aligning mindfulness, that is, recollection, and attentiveness. I think this is largely what Thich Nhat Hanh promoted as continuous, off-the-cushion mindfulness practice. This makes contemplation of bodily action an extremely powerful training in the art of mindful observation or satipatthana. But back to the text itself. As before, when we practice what this passage on contemplation of bodily actions calls for, we are accomplishing internal contemplation. We then bring internal analysis to completion according to the same common refrain. In this way, he abides contemplating the body in the body internally, or he abides contemplating the body in the body externally, or he abides contemplating the body in the body both internally and externally, or else he abides contemplating the body in its nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of both arising and vanishing, or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. He abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body in the body. So far, contemplating the body in the body internally means contemplating the breath, postures, and now bodily actions. In each case, we are experiencing the body in a different way or from a different perspective. This is important in each of the Satipatthana exercises. We are learning to adopt a mindset as we view the body, and through repetition it becomes internalized so that we adopt that mindset at will. 
contemplating the body in the body externally means acknowledging the presence of the body, something that substantially exists on its own, but without getting caught in any external train of thought concerning the body, beautiful, ugly, healthy, sickly, etc. Contemplating the body in the body both internally and externally means holding the breath, postures, and actions side by side against this external concept of the body, comparing them. What we find is that the body becomes more abstract, less substantial as we internalize any of the particular perspectives in the mind. If breath, postures, and bodily actions count as direct experiential evidence for the presumption that a substantial body exists, each exercise is an examination of how it is that we come to presume a body and and a challenge to that presumption. Do we really require the concept of a body out there in order to breathe, pose, or act? Or is breathing, posing, or acting sufficient in itself? Do bodily actions require a substantial body to do the actions? Or are actions just actions arising from their own conditions? These might seem like odd questions at this point, but this is the beginning of insight. We will come back to such questions over and over. Our presumptions are built up not only on the basis of evidence, but on the basis of cognitive habit patterns that draw conclusions from the evidence. The Buddha called these cognitive habit patterns sankharas, or formations, and declared them to be highly unreliable. Sankara is literally put together. Sankaras are the building blocks of cognition. They guide us in constructing the world mentally. In fact, you may recall that the 12-link chain of dependent co-arising begins with ignorance, then states that conditioned by ignorance, formations arise. Then, due to formations, cognizance, often translated as consciousness, arises. Cognizance is itself the engine of presumption, as we will see in later talks. Ignorance gives rise to formations, and formations give rise to cognizance. That is the beginning of the 12 links of dependent co-arising. Cognizance is presumptive because it relies on formations. Last week we learned that the Buddha said about presumption, Presumption Presumption is is a disease, disease. presumption Presumption is a tumor, tumor. Presumption Presumption is a dart. The Buddha said similarly about cognizance, Cognizance is a magic show, a juggler's trick entire. One of these formations is the thought pattern that if something happens, we presume there is an agent that makes it happen, a doer. If there is an action, then something or someone must be doing the action. In particular, bodily actions are done by the body or by the self that manifests as the body. 
That is what a body or self is. But this pattern is not valid across the board. If it's raining outside, is there something or someone doing the raining? We say it is raining, but we're hard-pressed to say what exactly it is that makes the rain happen. The idea of an agent is a structure we try to impose on the world over and over, wherever we can. In earlier animism, and in much of the world today, an agent is presumed to be behind virtually every natural event. If there is lightning, then Zeus is up there throwing lightning bolts, etc. That is who Zeus is. Modern ways of thinking and science have backed away from this common formation, joining Buddhism, which long before challenged this age-old formation or thought pattern to recognize that things just arise in themselves, like rain, when some set of conditions is present. Nonetheless, most people still quite naturally presume that there must be a body or a self responsible for every bodily action. As we settle into one of the body exercises, the formations that insist on a substantial body are stilled. The first body exercise refers to this process. Recall that with regard to contemplation of breath, the Buddha instructs, He trains thus, I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily formation. The substantial body fades from attention as we learn to see the body from the perspective of the breath. Recall that this reference to the bodily formation immediately precedes the description of the lathe operator and his single-minded focus on one turn or another as he mindfully performs the skill he is trained in, which is likely to turn the attention momentarily from the envisioned final product, a table leg, to the momentary task. If we have internalized a mindset that challenges the presumption of a substantial thing behind actions, the contemplation of impermanence then tightens up on this challenge. Or else he abides contemplating in the body the nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in the body its nature of both arising and vanishing. This has a simple logic. Bodily actions are by nature short-lived. They arise and they vanish. So is breath and so is posture. How can we claim permanence when all the evidence is impermanent? If an action is momentary, one cannot conclude that it must have a permanent agent. It is difficult to hold something arising and vanishing alongside the substantial body and claim the two are equivalent. This is why the first three steps of internal analysis concerning internal, external, and both internal and external contemplation are very important for framing the three impermanence contemplations that follow. 
as long as we presume the substantial body, the substantial self, or anything substantial, there will be permanent, or at least relatively permanent, things in the world. Living in a world of substantial things, it becomes difficult to envision their impermanence. When we put aside those presumptions, on the other hand, tranquilizing the bodily formation, at least temporarily, we live in a world of impermanence and insubstantial things. Although we retain the concept of body in order to at least talk about what we are doing and provide these instructions, the concept is emptied of substantial content. Or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body in the body. Without substantial things in the world, there is nothing we attach to or identify as me or mine. I hope it's clear that the refrain on internal analysis is coherent and very systematic in its composition. A way of describing internal analysis is analysis without presumption or pre-presumption analysis. It's in sharp contrast to normal ways of thinking, which are to take presumptions for granted, most of which almost everyone shares, and run with them. We have various forms of external analysis that presuppose our presumptions. They lock us into fixed ways of thinking that cause a lot of problems for us. Once we think of things as substantial and fixed, or at least relatively permanent, we identify with them and are locked into craving, attachment, and into developing a full-blown sense of self that we have to adhere to and defend. Presumptions exist at many levels. We build one presumption on another. Internal and external are defined with respect to a given level of presumption. For instance, we can presume the body, but we can analyze the body internally in terms of posture. What if we presume that the posture is a fixed, permanent thing that happens to be malleable, assuming different shapes? We might presume that. Then we can perform internal analysis on the posture to discover that it also is insubstantial. What is the evidence for the posture? Events of proprioception, of bodily awareness, which are impermanent, arising and vanishing moment to moment. What if we presume the breath is a permanent thing that happens to move in a cycle? Then we can perform internal examination on the breath to discover it is insubstantial. What is the evidence for the breath? Moments of tactile awareness of various pressures and motions, and so on. Next week, we'll discuss the contemplation of anatomy 
or parts of the body. This represents yet another perspective for experiencing the body in which we decompose it into its various organs. This is a more difficult exercise to internalize, but very powerful in its implications.